Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service. I'm so glad you decided to be with us today for the final part of our series, The Making of a Mighty Warrior. Now, this series is a little bit different, although we, we do series all the time, and they do kind of follow up on each other. This one specifically follows up on each other because we are going through, we are looking at the life of a man named Gideon in the Bible, in the book of Judges. So if this is your first day today in this series, I want to encourage you to go and watch the previous two messages or listen to them, either on any podcasting platform, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you might find your podcasts, or to go and watch it on YouTube. But let me give you a quick recap um, of what we've been talking about. There's many opportunities in life that require of us to be mighty warriors, to not be people who are afraid, who are timid, who are powerless, but people who, in the power of God, really rise up to the challenge in front of us. And we said in the first two parts, the first part, that we have to, if we want to become mighty warriors, if we want to be people that God can use, people that God can bring through the crises of life, we need to be willing to overcome the enemy within first. Because in all of us, there is a nature that will often try to dethrone, a sinful nature that will try to dethrone God from our lives. So we said we have to learn to trust Him, to turn to Him, to believe that He can make us the people who can get through it. And we have to stop relying on idols, power, strength, money, whatever it might be that we often rely on in life to get us through things. But then part two, we said once we get rid of this enemy, we need to start trusting God to get us through circumstances that might seem insurmountable to us. It seems like it's impossible for us to get through. And we might have limited strength. God doesn't. So we need to learn how to trust Him for victory and not our own strength, not our own abilities. But today we're going to continue, and today we're going to look at a little different side to this, kind of the the end of the story, because we often pray and ask God to do something miraculous in our lives, to to make us mighty warriors, to bring us through a challenge, to bring us through a crisis. I have prayed with people who couldn't get pregnant, and then two weeks later they're pregnant with twins. I have prayed with people who were sick and God healed. I've prayed with people who said, like, if God can just bring us through this financial crisis or these marriage problems, we will follow him faithfully. And often it does happen. But about, I want to say it's almost a 50-50. Half of the times that I've walked through pe- with people through really hard things, they make all these commitments to God and say, God, if you will bring me through it, then I will do this for you. And afterwards, it's just like they, they just go missing. They forget who brought them through the process, who got them through the crisis. And a while ago, I was at a conference where a pastor, Owen McManus, said something that really resonated with me. And that tells something of this story. He said, our greatest challenge is not overcoming the weight of failure. We believe that's a great challenge, right? When I fail, it's so heavy on me. Like, how do I get through this? He said, a greatest challenge is not overcoming the weight of failure, but overcoming the weight of success. He said, success is the thing that leads people to destructive behavior. And I think that is true, not only in my private life, 
not only in my public life, but also in my faith life, in my relationship with God, it can lead to destructive behavior, where I lose that special place where I was in sync with the heart of God, where I trusted God to bring me through it. And today what we're going to be saying is like, how can I stay balanced? If I trust God to make me the man that can get through the problem and God takes me through it, how do I remain balanced? How do I not allow success to derail my life and move me away from God? What are the dangers ahead when you do experience the breakthrough you've been praying through, when God does take you through the problem at work, when God does save your marriage, when God does free you from addiction or bondage or whatever you might have had in your life. And our topic today, the final part of the series, is called the danger of success. You see, because it's not just about becoming a mighty warrior, but when God does make us mighty warriors, we need to be able to remain in that spot as long as God wants to use us, which is probably as long as you'll be on planet Earth. So today we're going to continue reading from the book of Judges, and you can open your Bible to Judges, but let me just first give you a a backdrop again. In the book of Judges, we read of all of these massive problems that the Israelites faced before they had a king. And they didn't have, need a human king because God was their king. So all God would do is he would raise up a judge who would help lead his people through a problem. Gideon was one of these judges. He lived about 1,200 years before Christ. God raises him up, and God starts the conversation when he appears to Gideon. He starts the conversation this way, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I want you to remember that phrase specifically today, not just the mighty warrior, the part that precedes it. Because Gideon not only felt like he wasn't a mighty warrior, Gideon knew he wasn't the mighty warrior. And God says, but you are because I'm with you. But here's the interesting thing in the book of Judges, where Gideon breaks the pattern that we find in the rest of the book. In the rest of the book, God raises up a judge. The judge does what God calls them, and the story ends by saying, and the Israelites lived in peace for this amount of years. And that's where the story ends. With Gideon, there is two chapters that continues the story of his life after he's defeated the enemy. It is one of the only times in the book of Judges where more detail is given, not about the peace that they enjoy under this judge leadership, but about the downward spiral that not only Gideon, but the people of God experienced the moment they achieved success. They were, they started, they all the time backslid, right? Like God saves them and they make a mess. And God saves them and they make a mess. That was a story. But the story normally goes, God saves them, they live in peace with God, and then start making a mess after a couple of years. This time it's like God saves them and they immediately start spiraling downward. So that is the interesting thing. And we're going to see today what are the dangers of success. And if we are aware of them, here's the beauty. If we are aware of the danger, you can avoid it. If I don't know how to drive in snow, which I didn't just two years ago, like, you're going to crash, right? But if you are aware of the danger of snow and of a slippery road, you, you adjust for it. You prepare for it. You change two winter tires, which I have to do still. 
and I will, don't worry. I won't crash into you. But let's read from Judges 8, verse 1 to 9. We're going to read from Judges 8 and Judges 9 today. If you want to keep your Bibles open there, we're going to do three readings again and talk about each section. Judges 8, from verse 1. Now the Ephraimites, this is, Gideon just defeated... The, the part that we read last week was his 300 men defeated an army, and not actually his men. God just defeated it for them. The army of 135,000 soldiers, right? So now the Ephraimites, one of the strongest tribes in Israel, they show up after the defeat. This is what happens. Now the Ephraimites ask Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands because they were able to trap them before they crossed the river. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, the resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, because there's still a bunch of these Midianites fleeing, right? Keeping up the pursuit, they came to the Jordan River and crossed it. He said to the, man, to the men of Sukkoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. But the, official of, the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmana into my hands, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there, he went up to Penjil and made the same request of them. But there they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. And he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. That's what we're going to read. Guys, when, when, we, when we read this piece without context, it's easy to miss what is happening here. The Ephraimites are upset. Why didn't you invite us into the war? But you see, they weren't just upset that they couldn't be part of it. Remember, God specifically said, if, if too many men go and fight this enemy, Israel will believe that they saved themselves. So God didn't want them to be part of it. And they're not, afraid, they're not angry that, because they couldn't be part of it and they wanted to help out a brother. These guys are angry because they are the strongest tribe, one of the strongest tribes in Israel, both economically and militarily. They are frustrated. Why? Because they missed the opportunity of glory that comes with victory. They are upset. Like, why couldn't we get some glory for this victory? And it's interesting, as we continue reading today, you will see that when God told Gideon, I cannot save you with a lot of people because Israel will boast that they defeated the enemy themselves. Guess what? God was right. Gideon isn't even done yet, and there's already people upset because they didn't get the glory. And Gideon then answers Ephraim very diplomatically. 
He gives them a good answer to turn away anger. And you're like, okay, what about it? Then he goes to two cities. He crosses the Jordan. So he goes to the eastern side of Israel. And he encounters two towns, Sukkoth and Peniel. And you might go like, oh, these guys don't want to help him. They're probably enemy tribes. No, they weren't. These, are, these towns are part of the tribe of Gad. They are part of Israel. They are no different to the Ephraimites. But this time, Gideon doesn't give them a nice answer. This time, Gideon is like, I'm going to tear your flesh off you with some thorns. And he's mean and he's, he's angry. And I think what we see here is we start to see the actual heart of Gideon. Do you know why he was diplomatic to Ephraim? Because they were stronger than him. Than him. He couldn't strike out at them. He couldn't unleash his anger at them. They were too powerful. But the other two reveal his heart. Like Gideon feels like he deserves honor and recognition for what he has done. And beware the town, beware the man that's weaker than his men that says, we won't give you the honor you deserve. And you might feel like, well, what he, what he did was fine to be angry because they don't want to help his men. But what you have to understand, these two towns are east of the Jordan. They do not have all the military support that towns on the other side of the Jordan could have. If the Midianites attack from the east, guess, guess who would be the first guys to suffer? These two towns. These guys have probably for years suffered under the Midianites more than anyone else. They've probably worked really hard at appeasing these guys so that they won't destroy them all the time. So when they are saying, hey, we can't help you, guess what? They are feeling exactly the same as that moment when Gideon was at his tiny wine press and an angel appeared to him and said, you're going to defeat the Midianites. And he said, me? That's impossible. These people were afraid. And instead of Gideon telling them, guys, I understand why you're afraid. I understand it's hard to be brave. I was in the same position. But if God are with us, who can be against us? Instead of him having compassion with them, understanding what they are fearing, he says, how dare you doubt me? I'm the great Gideon. I will show you my power when I come back. And if you continue reading this, you will see that not only is he starting to, to act weird there, but his pursuit of the Midianites, if you read the rest of the story, he already defeated them. God didn't tell them that he has to continue his pursuit of them. His pursuit of the Midianites is not just motivated by a desire to completely annihilate them and deliver God's people. His pursuit is motivated by personal vengeance. He finds the kings. And what we didn't read in the story is that these kings of Midianite killed his two brothers. And he actually calls them out about this. He's like, you are the guys who killed my brothers, right? And he gives his boy, his son, a sword and says, you kill the kings. Because he wanted to humiliate them. That a boy could kill them. And finally, his son wouldn't do it, so he killed them himself. See, Gideon's success was his downfall. He became addicted and dependent on his success. He became proud. Instead of being 
the mighty warrior, because God is with you, he became, I'm the man, I'm the mighty warrior. He became proud. He became obsessed with his success and with his honor. And I think when we read this, it's so easy for us to to see the fault in Gideon, but we do the same thing. We work so hard to get the promotion. We work so hard to get the recognition. But if you lose your job or you fail at something, how do we feel? We feel defeated. We feel humiliated. We feel like my shame, like I'm living in shame. I work hard to stay healthy and to keep my body in shape. What's the worst thing that can happen? Sickness. I feel like, why did I even put in the effort? Look at me like I did all of this and I told people how to live healthy and now I'm there. You see, success becomes an idol really fast. It has the ability to fill us with pride before we even knew we were successful. And I think that is why often failure and disappointment could actually be a good thing in our lives. Because failure and disappointment not only reveals to us how much we idolize the wrong things in our life, but it also reveals to us the things like money and power and health and happiness and intellect and all of these things that we pursue cannot actually fill us, cannot give us what we hope to get in this life. Success can be bad for us. This is the first lesson that I think we can learn from Gideon in, in this part of his story, is that success can confirm our wrong belief that we can fulfill ourselves and control our own lives. Just a little while back, Gideon still had a right understanding of God. He still had a right understanding of his own weakness and God's strength. And when he walked, we read this last week, into that Midianite camp, and he heard that dream, and he heard the Midianite say that God is with Gideon. He walked away, the Bible says, he fe- and he fell on his knees, and he worshipped God. He knew that he wasn't in control. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. He knew that success wouldn't fulfill his life. But the moment that he achieved it, things changed and he started to lose the plot. And now suddenly he starts worshiping the success and the honor it brings. And he will annihilate anyone that doesn't give him the honor that he believes he deserves. He forgot who called him. He forgot who equipped him. He forgot the one who reassured him. And he forgot who it is that gave him the victory. And we do the same thing. Often when we succeed, we forget that we were all saved by grace. And I was just thinking of this. I'm like, what is the remedy? If success can confirm this wrong belief in me, if success can lead to pridefulness, what is the answer? I'm like, what what changed in Gideon? He stopped falling to his knees and worshiping. That's what changed. And I don't know what the... The answer is success can be hard, whether it's in business or in life or whatever it might be. But I think the remedy to it is worship and thankfulness. Because if Gideon fell to his knees and if they celebrated the victory that God gave them, maybe this wouldn't have happened. 
See, as long as we worship God, as long as we give Him the glory, as long as we remain thankful about what He has done in our lives, what He has given us, it prevents us from taking honor for ourselves that doesn't belong to us. Because if I'm giving it all to Him, I can take it for myself. But the moment I stop worshiping Him, the moment I stop giving it to God, the moment I'm stopping thankful to Him for what I have, I start taking it for myself. So I think worship and thankfulness can counter our prideful, sinful nature. But finally, Gideon defeated all of his armies and he feels like he's the man. And then this happens in Judges 8 verse 22. The Israelites say to Gideon, rule over us, you, your sons and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I'm like, come on, Gideon, come on. Finally, you're on track again. I'm so thankful. But then he says this. I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishlamites to wear gold earrings. And they answered, we will be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. And the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, I think it's about 20 kilograms, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains chains that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Orpha, his, his town, Orpha, his town, all of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. You see what they said in verse 22. Why should you become our king? Because you're a great leader? Because you are such an obedient servant of God, because you listened to God and He gave you victory? No, they say, become our king because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. I'm like, listen, no farm boy making wine in secret with 300 men defeats an army of 135,000 men. He didn't save you. That was the point of the story of God, like, I will do what men cannot do. And they're like, become our king because you saved us. You see, this is the thing. They were on this journey, this effort to find self-salvation. They were like, if we have a king, we don't need to rely on God. We just have a king who can march out, who can save us again. We can save ourselves, and we don't have to rely on God. We don't have to go to him every time to do it. And then we have this moment of hope in verse 23 where it seems like Gideon is on the right track, and he's like, sorry, guys, I can't do this because Israel is a few Like, God rules us, not men. And they're like, yes, Gideon. That was the whole point. This is, God always said, even when Saul officially became their king later on, God said, I don't want you to have a king. So it seems like Gideon remembers who God is and who he is. But by the way, it was a little moment, and it was the last time it happened in his life. Sadly, although he says God should be king, he assumes the honor due to a king, and he asks for all the financial rewards, over 20 kilograms of silver just from some earrings. 
of gold. He acts like a king, if you continue reading, by taking many wives and concubines, and he had numerous sons. And guess what he called his one son? Abimelech. Do you know what that means? Two Hebrew words. Son and king. He literally, after he said, I'm not going to be your king, he calls his son the name that says, my father is the king. He says God is king, but my son's name will tell you the story that I'm the king. He then goes and he makes the ephod. The ephod was an outer garment made of gold worn by the high priest to discern answers from God. It was, the play, it, was, it was set up in his hometown, but it was supposed to be at the tab, at where the Israelites would meet at the tabernacle. So what Gideon is doing now, he's saying, instead of going to where God wants you to worship him, instead of doing the right thing, what's going to happen now is, you're going to come to my hometown, this is going to become a rival place of worship, and you will find me, and you will find in me guidance for your lives. You don't have to go to the priest anymore. You don't have to go to where God said you should worship, worship him. So if you look at this, he says, no, God is king, but I'm going to take the money. I'm going to become rich. I'm going to take all the wives, call my son the son of the king. I'm going to do all of these things. What he's doing is he's using God to consolidate, consolidate his own position instead of using his position to serve God. He's using God to serve him and his position. Instead of Gideon, the mighty warrior, for God is with him. In his head, the song was now, you mighty king, you. And the effect of this is the whole Israel turns away and they move God off the throne in their own lives and in the whole nation again. Again. And, and, and what, what bothers me is if Gideon just said, I'm not going to become your king. He refused to become a king because he said God should be king. If he knows that God is king, why does he continue to act like a king? And here is the thing, and I want you to hear this, because this is one of the biggest mistakes I think Christians make, especially in westernized countries. He knew something intellectually. He knew the doctrine that God was the king of Israel, but it didn't grip his heart. He had a mental grasp on it, and he could give the right answer, but his heart didn't really understand how this works itself out in everyday life. There was this growing gap between what he knew about God and how he lived for God. And we do the same thing. I always have to think of this because I'm, I'm pretty much a fixer. And we say, God is king. God is the one who's got a solution for you. God is the one who can heal you. God is the one who can take you through something. But when, then we want to put on our ephod. And we want to be like, come, come to me. Like, I've got guidance. I've got advice. I've got a plan for you. I can help you. Or we say God is king and God can do anything. I'm a mighty warrior because he is with me. But then we just look for anyone that has something like an ephod and we turn to them and we're like, you help me, you guide me, you tell me what to do. 
we try to lead, we try to fix, we try to answer everything because as human beings, we need to be needed. We want to feel like we're needed. This is the second lesson that I learned from Gideon is that success can create a gap between what we believe about God and the actions in our lives. And I don't know what the remedy is, but I think the remedy is similar to the first one. But instead of just worshiping God and giving Him thanks, I think we need to learn how to point people to God rather than trying to solve everything for them. There's very few problems that I've helped people to solve in my life as a pastor over the last 17 years. But there are a lot of miraculous stories of God changing people's lives 180 degrees. See, as long as we point people to God from a place where I rely on God myself, we avoid taking this position of authority in their lives. Because we keep telling them God is your authority. God is the one that can change it. But the story continues in Judges 9, where Gideon has passed away, and now we're going to read about his sons. In Judges 9 verse 1, Abimelech's son of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, right? They gave him this name in the previous chapters when he um, destroyed the, the altars to Baal, the, the idol. He went to his mother's brothers, so to the other sons of Gideon in Shechem, and said to them and to all of his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you. To have all 70 of Jeroboam, Gideon's sons, rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all of this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for he, they said, well, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. And hear this. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. And then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Malo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. See, not only did success lead to a place where Gideon started to dethrone God in his own life, but success led to Gideon to leave a legacy that ruined the generation. He left a legacy that ends with one of his sons claiming kingship that he said belongs to God and killing all of his other sons. And when I read the story, I'm like, when Abimelech came to them and he said like, hey, go and ask the people who they want, me or you guys. I'm like, why did they even take him up on that offer? Like Gideon said, like, no one should be king. Like, why did they even go? They weren't kings. 
But what I realized again, Gideon set an example of what? Of pride. He set an example of someone that said, I deserve the honor, and if you don't give it to me, I will take it. So that is exactly how they, they acted. They're like, we, we should be the rightful heir. So we're going to go, and we're going to see who comes out on top. They were prideful. So they go, and they ask the city who they want, and what happens? They're all killed at the end of the day. Gideon set an example of pride and power for his sons, and they followed in his footsteps. And I want to warn you today and tell you today that if you have children, your children will follow in your example. If you don't have children and you think like you're, you're off the hook here, everyone in your circle of influence are affected by the way you live, by the example you set, by the culture you live out, the culture you build. And as I was reading this, I'm like, literally, we see the fruit of Gideon's action, and not his action when you obeyed God, the action for the rest of his life. You see, he lived two lives, a life following God and a life then of honoring himself. And his kids chose the second option. And I was thinking about my own life and my two goals, and I'm like, what are my, my kids seeing? in the things that I praise them for, in the things that I talk about, in the things that I value, that I spend a lot of time on. Because whatever you live, they're going to follow that. If your main priority is to be at a different place on a Sunday, don't be surprised if your grandchildren are one day not followers of Jesus and not in a church. If your children never see you kneeling and praying, if they never see you reading the Bible, if your children never hear you talking about God's grace and His provision, don't be surprised if they turn away from Him because they believe He's a God not worth following. If all they ever see you spending time on, if they see the thing that you value the most as this little thing in your hand, don't be surprised if they are always glued to it. You see, we all leave a legacy. And sadly, success that most of us know pretty well in a country like Canada can lead you to leave a legacy honoring pride and power over God. And I don't know what the remedy is, but maybe it's just deciding on what legacy you want to leave behind. And then building systems into your life and rules into your life that lead you to leave that legacy. God does not prize popularity. God does not prize humor and academic excellence and extroverts and great mighty warriors who can defeat an army. Do you know what God truly values? He values people who hold on to his truth. People who seek to lead their family right. People who want to share his values with the watching world. He doesn't need you to be successful or to be great. He just needs you to be obedient. So at the end of this series, I want to tell you, let's become mighty warriors for a mighty God. 
Let's overcome the enemy within that so often tells us we cannot trust God. We have to doubt Him. We're not enough. Let's overcome that. Let's trust Him completely in our weakness to give us victory that we can't achieve. And let's avoid the trap that success so often leads to. The trap of dethroning God in our lives and elevating ourselves to a place of authority. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for stories like the story of Gideon. Because we're sometimes really hard of hearing and we struggle to really learn. And we make the same mistakes over and over. They just look a little different. But I know that success and pride and everything that goes with it is a struggle that I fight with every day. And I think for most of us that is the truth. But I thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to save myself from it, that you are enough. That you are greater than my weakness and my flaws and my sin. And that you have died to set me free from it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would remind me every single day that I'm not the king. That my family and my church and my friends and my workplace don't need a king. But that they need Jesus. And I pray that I will live that out in the most simple and humble and practical ways so that the legacy we leave for the generation to come will be better than the one we received. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.